turn in your Bibles to Acts 24, please. I don't know if you noticed uh, the kind of the proclamation theme that's running through uh, the, this afternoon, uh, but it is. Uh, we've been thinking about the idea of what it means to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim him as Lord. One of the things that is difficult in our world sometimes is to be absolutely honest about who we are. And uh, like it's even easy, and you know what I'm talking about when I say this, it's even easy sometimes to kind of let slide the fact that you are in our world a Christian. It's not the absolute easiest thing to proclaim. Sometimes we know that there are people around us who don't want to hear the message that we're Christian. There are sometimes people who will treat us a certain way because we are Christian. Maybe you start to get into a group and things are going pretty well and then all of a sudden they find out you're a Christian and it throws that relationship out of whack. And so sometimes it's easier to just not talk about it. And there are other things in our life that when we're confronted, it's easy to just not talk about, to kind of let them slide or to not be honest about all the facts about who we are. And you know, I, you have things in your life that if I, was to, you know, if I was to say to people today, this morning, hey, let's all confess our sins. There are those of us who would be reticent to do so. And we would say, no, you know, I, I might confess some things, but I'm not going to confess everything. I might be honest to a point, but I'm not going to be totally honest. I'm not going to be totally revealing. Yes, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. So would I reveal everything to them? I think we like we tend to not. And so, you know, it used to be 30 years ago maybe that a preacher would stand up and he'd preach a sermon. At the end, he would call people to come forward and they'd make some kind of response to the sermon. And sometimes people would come forward to be baptized. Sometimes they'd come forward to ask for prayer uh, because of their sins and confess those sins. But we don't do that very much today. There's not very much confession that goes on. It's just become harder for us to be revealing, I think, about who we are. Well, we're going to kind of talk a bit about that in terms of uh, honesty, in terms of revealing, and, and then the whole notion of testifying, testing, testifying honestly about who Jesus is in our lives. And I wanted to open with this story about a, a baseball player. Uh, his name is Willie Mays Aikens. And it, not to be confused with Willie Mays, who played some time ago. Willie Mays Aikens played after Willie Mays. Still some time ago, but, but definitely after Willie Mays. And he is a, a guy who got into trouble in his life. And I want you to notice, as the, as the story unfolds here, about the things that he says about his own life. The way that he's very confessional and honest about who he is when it comes to the kind of life that he eventually lived. Christine? Every day, every game of the World Series, I used drugs, I snorted cocaine. It had become a part of my life. 
While I was incarcerated, almost every day I used to hear people tell me, Willie, whenever you get out, you should, should write a book. You know, you have a very uh, interesting story. And I do. Willie Mays Aikens was born in Seneca, South Carolina. He grew up poor with an unfortunate stutter. I've never met my dad before, upon his stepfather, who was an alcoholic, in and out of jail. The house that I grew up in, it was a shack, man. I mean, it was really a shack. We didn't have any running water in our home. We drank water out of a well from the ground. You could look through the cracks of our floors and see the ground. That's how poor I grew up. He was born to hit a baseball. Of, of all, he was a great football player, great lineman. But um, some people are born to do one thing, and Willie Mays Aikens was born to, to swing on a ball. Ended up get, getting a good education, going to college, got drafted, professional baseball player, made it to the top. Aikens was drafted by the California Angels, where he found success in 1979. He was soon traded to the Kansas City Royals and would back cleanup behind Kansas City legend and Hall of Fame third baseman George Brett. He was a threat every time he got a bat in his hand. He didn't panic. Uh, he was always very confident about his abilities as a hitter. And you can see the awesome swing that Aikens had. Though his team eventually lost to the Phillies, Aikens became the first player in Major League Baseball history to hit two home runs in two separate games in the same World Series. All right, Willie, what does this win mean to the Royals now? Pretty sure it's going to give all the guys on the team uh, a lot of uh, confidence. And uh, I got confidence myself that we can come back and, and win the series. He was always a great teammate, uh, a lot of fun to be around, always laughing, always having a good time. What was that time period like? There were players on our team, and there were players on a lot of teams that did that stuff back then. You know, pulled all-nighters, snorting cocaine. Uh, I wasn't in that crowd. Basically... I never realized a lot that he was doing. What did it feel like? Once you snorted it and once it got in your blood, it just, it stimulated you. There was no reason for me to stop doing what I was doing. I was playing baseball well. I had girls in every, in every city. I mean, life was good at that time. He had a rhythm. He would do coke. He would try to go to sleep. If he couldn't, he'd do a shot. He'd wake up. He'd go to the park. And he, he still had it in his veins. I don't think he had any consciousness that he was hurling towards a, you know, a major disaster. Then about 1983, you know, the poop hit the fan and, and he got in a lot of trouble. We had four players on our team thrown in prison that year. Uh, Jerry Martin, Vita Blue, Willie Wilson, and Willie Mays Akins. Became one of the first players ever to go to prison while active as a baseball player. Mr. Wilson and Mr. Aiken were both uh, sentenced to one year in jail. They are to serve 90 days of that sentence with the remainder of the sentence suspended. We ended up doing 81 days, but that, that came as a total shock to, to all of us. This judge is making a point. Anyone who either attempts to possess cocaine or wishes to distribute cocaine is very well facing... Thanks, Chris. You can kind of get to the, the gist of the story. Uh, you know, here was a guy who was at the very pinnacle of his baseball career. He, in, uh, in 1980, he had hit two home runs in two separate games in the World Series. And by 1983, he was incarcerated... Uh, he, at least for a short period of time. The film doesn't. It goes on to talk about this later on, about how he later on is arrested again, and uh, ends up being um, 
put in jail for about eight years or so uh, while he is, uh, you know, at first, uh, when he leaves Kansas City, he goes to the Toronto Blue Jays and plays for them for a while and ends up uh, in prison for about eight years. Well, one of the things that is so compelling about Willie Mays Aiken's story, and you see just a little bit of it here, he's just written a book uh, that talks about his, his story, and uh, Safe at Home is the name of the book. And it talks very pointedly and very frankly about who he was as a drug user and drug dealer. And he did eventually get arrested for dealing uh, drugs as well. And it talks about how he had gone from the epitome of athletic stardom to just the lowest of lows in terms of life. And he describes that in very vivid detail, the things that he used to do as far as drugs, what he used to do as far as selling drugs. And the things that I, the thing that I appreciate so much about the story is is his vividness and his, his honesty about who he is. He gets to the point where he says, this is who I was. And he says it so matter-of-factly. Like he kind of did here. He said, you know, he said, every day of the World Series, I was snorting cocaine. And he's, he's just so out there with the truth about where his life went. And there's a powerful testimony in that kind of honesty and the willingness of one to testify, to will, willing to say, here's who I am, and to stay with that testimony no matter what's going on. And so he, you know, he says, this is who I am, and it's powerful, powerful uh, testimony as one is so honest. Now when you turn to the book of Acts and do that, if you, please look at Acts chapter 24. In Acts 22, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem and is, is at that point uh, in trouble. God had said that he was going to be in trouble. The Lord had already told him in verse 21, I'm sending you to the Gentiles and you're, you're going to be arrested and you're going to end up testifying before them. And so Paul recognizes that that's going to be the case. In chapter 22, verse 30, and I'm getting to chapter 24, but in chapter 22, verse 30, we find that Claudius Lysias, the commander who's in charge of a thousand soldiers, has to put a large number of those soldiers around Paul and send him off to Caesarea to protect him from the crowds that have already decide, decided that they're going to kill him. And then after Paul begins to make a testimony within the city of Caesarea, in chapter 23, verse 11, it says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And that's indeed exactly what happens to Paul. He has to testify ultimately in Rome. But for a while, in fact for over two years, he's incarcerated in Caesarea, and there he has to testify about who Jesus is. Now look at chapter 24 with me, beginning in verse 1. This is after he arrives in Caesarea, and the, the governor Felix wants to investigate and find out what's going on with Paul here. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. So Paul's there, his accusers are there, the governor is there. 
When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace unto you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So Tertullus has something to say. He's going to accuse Paul of a crime in front of this governor. We have found this man to be a troublemaker. Stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we have brought against him. And so he, Paul is being charged with rebelliousness. He's being charged with stirring up a crowd, desecrating the temple. Verse 9 says, The Jews joined in the accusation asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple. I wasn't stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Now this is interesting because Paul's claim is they can't prove the charges. They've brought certain things against me. They can't prove them. And he goes on after verse 17 or through verse 17 and following and talks about the charges that are brought against him and says, they can't prove anything here about me. I'm, I'm an innocent guy when it comes to the charges. Now that's all interesting. But what's most interesting is what you see in verses 14 through 16. Because Paul could have easily gotten off based on the charges that were made against him. Paul didn't stir up the crowd. He didn't desecrate the temple. He wasn't guilty of the things they were saying about him. The reason they brought charges against Paul was because he was a Christian. And they didn't like the fact that he was a Christian. And so they bring charges against him, but these charges really had nothing to do that the Romans would be interested in. So they bring the charges, but they can't prove anything. But listen to what Paul says in verses 14 through 16. However, he says, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And what Paul just did in saying what he said, is he just proclaimed, testified to Christ. And he didn't have to. In fact, I've got Oren here. Oren, you want to grab that chair and bring that up here? Oren's going to do something for me here, which kind of indicates what's going on here, I think. Paul is himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of Christians, by his own admission, a rising star among the Jews before he become a Christian, before he becomes a Christian. But then he finds himself standing before a Roman governor charged with crimes by the very Jews of whom he had been part. So he's with these guys, he's in cahoots with them against the Christians, and now he finds them accusing him of various things. He's a troublemaker, desecrates the temple, stirs up a riot, those kind of things. And then he takes opportunity in verses 14 through 16 to say things that he didn't have to say. And in fact, you'd think the prosecutor wouldn't have wanted him to say. And it's kind of like this. Let's imagine that Oren 
is at home with his dad. And suddenly Ron, who is violently allergic to peanuts, this is not really the case, but we'll pretend for the moment that it is, that Ron's violently allergic to peanuts and he begins to have this violent reaction. Oren, who has been taking driver's education and so is able to drive by himself, even though it's not legal for him to do so, recognizes the problem and realizes that he has to do something about it. But there's no medicine in the house. So Oren, who loves his dad, grabs the keys, bolts from the house, jumps in the car, and drives at breakneck speed to the nearest pharmacy. However, Oren is so worried about his father, and because he has no money, he runs into the store, grabs the medicine, and bolts out of the store without paying. He jumps in the car and speeds toward home with the medicine that will save his dad's life when suddenly the car begins to sputter and jolt. Oren looks at the gas gauge and realizes that the car is completely out of gas. Fortunately, there's a gas pump right next to where he now is. Oren pulls into the pumps as the car dies, grabs a gas nozzle from a little old lady who's about to fill her car, puts $2 worth of gas in, drops the nozzle on the ground, spilling gas everywhere, jumps into the car and speeds off toward home again. He goes as fast as he can. As he drives, he runs through a red light, and on his way, a policeman who is sitting at the light sees Oren speed by and follows him. Oren sees the policeman's patrol car lights, but ignores them because he has to get to his dad. Oren saves his dad, but he is nonetheless in trouble. Oren ends up being charged with driving without a license, with speeding, with dangerous driving. Two counts of petty theft for the medicine and the gas, putting the health of someone else at risk, running a red light, evading a police officer, and resisting arrest. And charged with doing damage to harm to the environment because he didn't put the gas pump back in its place and gas ended up running into the storm drain. So Oren is now before a judge and a prosecuting attorney who is dressed for the occasion. And he's asking Oren some questions. Okay? Oren, is it true that on the night of May 7th, 2012, that you did in fact drive your parents' car without a license, driving at a high rate of speed through a residential section, including a school zone? Is this true? Yeah, but... You don't understand. My dad was in trouble. I needed to save him. No, Oren, is it true? I just want you to answer the question. Is it true? Give me a yes or give me a no. Yes. Yes, it's true? Yes. Did you enter Shoppers Drug Mart and the Crowfoot Shopping Center at approximately 8.30 p.m. and steal some anti-peanut allergy medicine from the shelf and run out of the store without paying for it? Yes, but I didn't have any money. Oren, that's good enough? The yes will do. It sounds to me as though we have a guilty young man here. Did you knowingly stop at the Petro-Canada station at Shaganapi and Crowchild Trail a few minutes later and steal $2 worth of gasoline, dropping the pump and creating an environmental disaster, putting at risk the life of Mrs. Alice Mitchell, who was filling her tank, along with the lives of numerous trout in the Bow River? Is that true? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll do. Did you run a red light on the way back to your house? Again, speed through a school zone and willfully resist arrest, refusing to stop when ordered to do so by Officer Sandusky. Yes. Oren, the yes was good enough. 
Thank you very much. You can go down. Now go easy on the boy. He's guilty. You can leave it there. He's guilty of some things for sure. But he's not really a bad kid. And his parents have done the best they possibly could. (laughs) Now in this case, the prosecuting attorney does not allow Oren to tell the whole story. And the reason is because the lawyer just wants the facts. And if I'm a Jew, or for that matter, a Roman, who's prosecuting Paul, all I want is the facts. And it looks like that's all Paul should give them. He has a statement to make. No, I did not stir up the crowd. No, I didn't desecrate the temple. I'm not guilty of the things of which I'm being accused. But notice that Paul doesn't do that. In fact, in verses 14 through 16, Paul ends up doing exactly what God had called him to do. And he testifies about who Jesus is in his life when the fact is he didn't have to. He didn't have to tell them that. It wasn't going to do his case any good. He wasn't going to get off the hook because he was a Christian. But God had planned from the beginning that Paul was going to tell the whole truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. It was God's plan for Paul to testify, and that's what he does. And he uses his circumstances to bring glory to Christ. And that's what God does. He uses circumstances when we are willing to testify on his behalf to bring glory to Christ. As I said, one of the things that I love about this story about Willie Mae Aikens is that he's honest. Now, what he does now with his life is go around and testify. He talks specifically about the way that cocaine wrecked his life. Talks about his time in jail. He talks about, and to young people, about how important it is that they remain off of drugs both athletes and non-athletes, how important it is that they stay away from the things that will ruin their lives. And he's like exhibit A of a ruined life because of drug abuse. But it's his honesty and his willingness to testify about who he really is that is the compelling part of the story. That's how he has an impact, by being so honest with the things that he's done and the things that he shouldn't have done. And so you might want to get safe at home just because of the honesty of the book. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the faith of Jordan and Carrie. And I said that I don't believe that God caused all kinds of things to come into their lives. I don't think that God caused them to have two diseased children. I don't think that it was God's purpose to have Drew and Piper both die with a fatal disease. I don't think this is exactly the same circumstance as God calling Paul to give his life for the cause of Christ. But one thing I know is that God may well and has in the past and has in fact in the lives of Jordan and Carrie used their circumstance when they're very upfront about who they are as Christians to minister to others specifically with the gospel. And because of of Drew passing away, and now in light of Piper's death, there are opportunities that come to Jordan and Carrie, and sometimes to you and me, in order to testify about how God has worked in the life of the Clarks. 
One of the things I've noticed about Jordan and Carrie is that they don't have a problem dealing with the tough questions. Or at least not like I think I would. Like they get asked the tough questions. And they ask themselves the tough questions. And they don't ignore the hard questions that come to two parents who've lost two children. They don't ignore the tough questions. They deal with them. And they attempt to sort them out because they are people of faith willing to testify about how God works in their lives even despite the fact that they've lost two children. If anybody has the right to ask hard questions, it's them. They're not unintelligent. They're not unreflective. They're not unquestioning people. But in the end, faith in God's direction for their lives wins out. For Jordan and Carrie, God's love for them and their children abides. And it's amazing that two people who've lost two kids can say with all confidence and testify to anybody who wants to hear it that God loves them and loves their children. But that's exactly where they're at. And you hear it and you see it over and over again. Faith abides in them and it abides in their testimonies about Jesus Christ. If you have any doubts about that, listen to these words from Carrie's blog. What takes more faith? Praying selfishly for Piper's physical healing or praying that my heart will be open to whatever the outcome is and not just okay, but that my heart will be full? Would Piper rather I pray that she can stay here with me or that she can be in a place with no tears, with no pain, with no suffering, and with more safety and security, more beauty, more wonder, and more love than I can possibly provide, let alone fathom? Are all the incredible things we have experienced just coincidence? Or is it God working? If I choose to believe it is, where does that put me? If I choose to believe they're just coincidence, what does that do for me? What is the better place to be? Is there a downside to believing it could be God working? There certainly are benefits to believing it is. I find that believing God is beyond explanation, and my small understanding provides more comfort than less. If Piper isn't healed physically, was my faith too weak? It becomes my fault if I say that her physical healing is dependent on the strength of my faith. Then I'm putting my faith in the power of my prayer instead of in the power of God. Is it a cop-out to allow myself to pray both for her healing and to allow for the possibility that she may not be healed? I look for an answer on this and I remembered that Jesus prayed these words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I don't know about you. I think it'd be hard for me to pray that. I think there are times in my life when it's too easy for me to want my will. When moments are difficult, 
when I'm put on the spot, when there are challenges? Like, would I always be able to testify about who Jesus is if I was on the spot, if things got horrible? Oh, I pray that I could. I pray that I would have this kind of faith that would allow me in the darkest of moments in my life to be able to testify to the goodness of God in my life, to be totally honest about loving God and being what God wants me to be at the toughest of times. I admire so much the kind of faith in Jordan and Carrie that allow them to make that kind of testimony about who Jesus is at the darkest of hours. But that's exactly what I see in Paul. Listen to these words again, what Paul says in verses 14 through 16 in chapter 24. He says, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that here will be a resur- that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now the guy who wrote those words was at the time faced with his own death. He knows that if he confesses Jesus as Lord, that the Jews who are there, ready to convict him, are going to cut him off when he makes the, the claim about Jesus. All they want is the, yes, just give me the facts here. Do you really serve Jesus or not? And when he says yes, then they're not satisfied. Not satisfied until he's dead. And that's exactly what happens eventually. But what about us? Like Jordan and Carrie take opportunity through the darkest moments in their lives to confess Jesus, to respond in faith, to present a message of faithfulness to the world. People who don't know Christ read their blog and are changed because they read what has happened to these people and the confessions they make about Jesus. You and I have opportunities on a regular basis to make a confession and to testify about Jesus. We have got to use our opportunities. And it's not a question of guilt if I don't, or the preacher's going to guilt me into this so that I'll do it. The point is, is that there are people who need to hear about Christ. And no matter what kind of spot we're in, no matter what kind of strength it takes for us to testify about who Jesus is, through every moment, in the darkest of times, we need to proclaim Jesus Lord. And so I'm praying that this week, when you have opportunity, when it comes up, when it's there for you to proclaim Jesus, that you do. I guarantee you that there will be times in the next few days when Jordan and Carrie are going to be confronted with opportunities. And I see nothing in them that makes me think they won't be proclaiming loudly their faith in Jesus, even despite the deaths of two of their children. Somehow I think we can find it within ourselves to proclaim Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be honest. Help us to tell the truth 
about who Jesus is. And when opportunities arise and we can confess him as Lord, help us to do it. And when those hurting people are around us who need to hear of Jesus, make sure we don't hold back. Help us to confess before men that Jesus is Lord. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.